Luke 14, we're starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's the word of the Lord. So that's kind of heavy, right? I I think this is one of the more challenging teachings of Jesus. Um, It was challenging to the original audience that heard it. It's challenging to us. Um, However, I think one of the things that we will see is that it is challenging to us for similar yet very different reasons. Um, And yet I'm convinced this is one of the most important texts that people who are connected to the church need to hear. I need to hear this. This is as much a sermon to me and for me as it is for anyone else here. Um, You need to hear this. I pray that this afternoon that we all have ears to hear this as well, because it's hard. Uh, Lindsay and I moved to Shreveport nine years ago, almost 10 years ago. Hard to believe it's been almost 10 years ago. And before we moved here, we lived in Dallas for a number of years after college. And the entire time we lived in Dallas, we rented places. Like, we rented apartments, houses. And, uh, I mean, we lived, in, we lived downtown for a while. We lived in West Plano for a while. You know, we weren't in any way about to buy a house, you know, in any of those parts of town. We certainly didn't have the money to do that. And honestly, there's, there's such an abundance of rental property in Dallas that there's a lot of great stuff available and it's really not all that much more than you would be paying for a mortgage. And so when we moved to Shreveport, we thought, oh, we'll just rent a place, right? We'll just rent a house. Um, we'll find somewhere in South Highlands or Broadmoor and it'll be great. And we'll, we'll live there for a little bit and we'll figure out exactly where we want to be and then we'll buy a house a few years down the road. And then we got to Shreveport, right, and started looking at rental properties, which was super depressing um, because one, there were not many available at that particular time. We went, oh, okay, this isn't where we've been. Like there, there aren't hundreds of houses available to rent in the area that we want. Um, so after uh, looking at a couple of like super dumpy and yet for some reason super expensive places, we just said, Oh, well, let's just buy a house. We'll just, we'll just buy something. At, and like, didn't think about it. Like, neither of us had ever bought a house before. I, I like genuinely didn't, I didn't know what was, I thought, oh, you just put a deposit down and you buy a house, right? 
And so I remember talking to a realtor and the realtor said, well, you guys need to get pre-approved for a loan. And so I don't remember how much it was, but it was like we got approved for like $1.2 million or something ridiculous. You know, it was some, it wasn't that much, but it was some big amount that I thought, oh, like we can afford way more house than I originally thought, you know? And, um, and then I actually talked to the mortgage officer and started talking about the concept of monthly payments and what those would actually be. And I realized, oh, like we need to be looking way down at the other end of the spectrum for a place. And, and then it was just like one thing after another. It was like, oh, we have to put down earnest money. Well, how much is that going to be? Oh, we have to get an inspection? Like, what is that? How much? Oh, that's like 400 bucks? Okay. Um, oh, here's this thing called closing costs. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. Like, the realtors, I guess, oh, that makes sense. They have to get paid somehow. Um, we did not count the cost. Like, we did not sit down ahead of time and go, here's everything that's going to happen. We, we kind of, like, found this out as we were in the process. And we were not like prepared to buy a house in any way. We had not been saving money for years so that we had this awesome down payment on a house. We just like scraped together like, and, and kind of like ate beans and rice for a little bit to like make it happen. Cause it was like, well, I, you know, I guess we're in it now. It's gonna be super embarrassing to have to call the realtor and go, hey, we don't actually have the money to do this thing. So we bought a house. <laughs> And I was thinking about that this week as I was reading through this scripture. I, like, I wish, I wish that we had done our homework. Like, I, I look back now and go, I wish that we had just kind of bitten the bullet and jumped into a rental and like saved our money and had a great down payment and then went into the home buying process. But that's not what we did. And we honestly didn't know what we were getting into. Um, with that in mind today... This is Jesus' teaching to those who say they want to follow him. And this scene begins in, in a very kind of typical way with Jesus out somewhere teaching and mass crowds of people, possibly in the thousands, because that is not unheard of for Jesus. Thousands of people following him around. And what Jesus says to them is, listen, if you want to follow me, you need to count the cost, meaning you need to do an honest and like sober-minded appraisal of what I'm actually asking of you and what that would actually mean for your life. What is it really going to take for you to be a true disciple? You need to be aware of the challenges that you're going to face. You need to be aware that this is not going to be easy. But if you're going into it, and you know those things in advance, and you still commit your life to it, it's not going to make the challenges less difficult, but there will be a greater likelihood that you will actually stick it out. So in today's text, Jesus highlights what would have been one of the greatest costs for those who would follow him during that day and time, and that was that it would probably significantly affect or destroy their family relationships. So you have to realize at this point where we pick up in the story of Jesus today, there are certainly those among the religious elite who are bothered by Jesus. And yet there are thousands of people who are enamored with him. He is not seen at this point by most people as like the incarnate Messiah. 
Some people suspect maybe that's who he is. Some people completely deny that that's who he is. But more than likely for most people, he is seen as like a radical rabbi. As somebody who's saying interesting things, unlike anyone else, someone who has supposedly done some miraculous things. Um, there will come a time, though, where Jesus will move from mass approval of the general public to very quickly mass disapproval of the general public. And as you read the story of Scripture, that shifts in about a week because you go from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where people are literally laying their coats before him. And, um, and if you've ever been at like a, 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 a Palm Sunday service, people are laying the palm fronds on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna in the high, like this is our king who has come to just a few days later shout and crucify him. So there is this like very abrupt change in the public perception of Jesus. And so he moves Eventually, he transitions in the public conscious from being a radical rabbi to being an executed criminal. And so when Jesus tells this mass crowd of people, you need to count the cost. You need to consider the ramifications of following me. What they don't realize is that what's going to happen is he's going to make this shift at some point. And it's going to fall out of favor and suddenly he's going to be perceived as an executed Criminal. He says famously, you have to hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters. You have to hate your family in order to follow me. And this is an example of one of those words that, yes, we can translate it as hate. But what it really means is not to show malice in the way that maybe we use the word hate today. But really what it means is you need to love me more than you love your family. Right. You, you need to um, your priorities need to be on me first and other things second. And if you are unwilling to put me first and in a sense, love other things less then you cannot be my disciple is what he said. Did you notice how many times he says you cannot be my disciple if you don't hate your mother and father, if you don't love them less than you love me? If I'm not your first love, you cannot be my disciple. He says, if you don't renounce everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Like the guy that comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you. What do I need to do? And Jesus ultimately says, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy can't do it. It's, the cost is too great. Like as he counts the cost, he cannot fathom not having his great wealth. And so what's actually happening there, we may not see it in this way, but what's actually happening there is his wealth is his functional God. His wealth is the thing that he idolizes. His wealth is the thing that he worships. And so the, the concept of actually putting Jesus above that is more than he's willing to buy into. And so as he counts the costs, he says, this is not worth it to me. And he goes away sad, according to the scriptures. And so Jesus is throwing out, in the same way that he did with the rich young ruler, he's throwing out this same concept to everybody in this crowd. Jesus is not impressed by the fact that thousands of people have gathered in the way that we would be. If, if a thousand people showed up here, we'd be going, wow, like praise the Lord. 
Like, thank God for bringing these people. And yet Jesus is very intentionally trying to thin the herd here. Jesus is like very intentionally saying, most of you aren't going to want what I'm talking about. Like most of you are not going to want to do what I'm saying. And if you actually count the cost, many of you are much like the rich young ruler, are probably going to walk away sad because what it's going to take to receive this free gift of salvation is going to be more than you want to embrace. You see, even though salvation is free, it also in a very worldly sense has the potential to be very costly to us, right? Paul says, all the things that I once counted gain, I now count as loss. What what are those things in your life? What are the things that you think of as gain in your life, as blessings in your life? And, And would you be willing to consider those things as less than or secondary for what Paul says, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Like, is his value of far greater worth to you than even the greatest things of this world. Your money, your family, your home, your possessions, your job, your sense of purpose, your career, all of these things that are good things. But are those things becoming your functional God? Are those things actually becoming the thing that you worship rather than Christ? So Jesus says, listen, if you're going to come after me, be aware that there is great potential for there to be significant familial ramifications. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the general public in Israel following Jesus's execution, right after everybody said crucify him. So the general public following Jesus's execution, I don't think it's a stretch to say that most people considered him in the same way that we think about like cult leaders in like, like weird sect religious leaders in today's world. That's kind of the way that he was thought of by the general public. And I was thinking about David Koresh. Do you remember David Koresh? Some of y'all may be too young. I don't know. Uh, but in the 90s, uh, David Koresh had uh, a group, uh, like this weird religious cult in Waco, Texas called the Branch Davidians. And the Branch, they were doing, David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, there was a lot of weird stuff going on. I think a lot of drugs, uh, guns, like all, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, and, and David Koresh uh, died in this FBI raid on their property in Waco. So, so just imagine if, if your son, your child, or your brother, or your cousin or your parent, if one of your close family members came to you in 2019 and said, you know what, Uh, even though David Koresh died in that whole thing, he actually came back from the dead. But many people didn't see him. Like, it was only a small group that saw him when he came back from the dead, but he came back. And so I've actually decided in 2019, 20 plus years later, I'm going to devote my life to him. What would you think? you would think you're insane. Like you have literally gone crazy. This isn't real. That's not a real thing. So imagine a first century Jewish context, highly religious, highly devoted to the Torah, to the first five books of the Bible, the law of God, highly devoted to like this heightened state of religiosity. And suddenly you go to your parents 
or to your brothers and sisters. You know that guy that was just killed for being a religious criminal who like the orthodox respected leaders said was a heretic and a blasphemer. You know that guy that was like crucified. He actually came back from the dead and I've decided to give him my entire life. What do you think happened? Well, in the culture of Jesus's day, this kind of thing was a recipe for being completely disowned by your family, like literally written off by your family. It was a recipe for becoming a social pariah. So Jesus says, you have to take this into account so that you can prepare to stay the course. Now, here's what I want us to see, because this is this is really fascinating to me. With all of those things in mind about the way that this could affect your family. When I was 13 years old, I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized. By the time I was 15, I remember telling my parents that I thought the Lord was calling me into pastoral ministry. And they could not have been more proud. Because we live in a completely different culture than first century Israel. We live in a culture today where it's not only socially acceptable to follow Jesus, it is, I would say, in many sectors, socially celebrated, right? If you're someone who says you're a follower of Christ, more than likely, here in the South, if you are from here, your family is going to go, praise the Lord. Your family is going to be really proud and pleased that you're somebody who says, I want to devote my life to Christ. Now, there are other parts of the country, certainly, where that's less the case, if not completely untrue. But at least here where we live, it is socially accepted, socially expeditious even, for you to align yourself with Christianity, for you to align yourself with Jesus. And so... What Jesus is telling this mass crowd of people, to some extent, is not a thing for us. I don't have to count the cost of how me following Jesus is going to affect my family because my family thinks that's great. Are you all following me? And it's likely that you'll hear that and think, well, praise the Lord, like we don't have to face violent persecution for following Jesus. We don't have to deal with what folks in like closed countries have to deal with. And that may be true. However, I would throw this out there. I also believe that our context, our, our, our like religious Christian culture here in Shreveport, Bossier, that it actually has the potential to lull us into a state of superficial religiosity where we are not actually following Christ, where we are not actually counting the real cost of discipleship for our lives, because for many of us, there is no perceived cost. Following Jesus has become about, I go to church. Like I attended this event and then I attended this Bible study. And in the morning, sometimes when I get up, I read the Bible. Isn't that what this is? And, and I would say, you may very well be a follower of Christ, but I think there are many people who have been lulled into a state of complacency by checking the box of doing religious things without actually saying, Jesus, my life is yours. 
and I'm going to follow you with everything. And I'm going to seek to be obedient to you in everything. This parable came to mind as I was thinking through this text. This is Matthew 21, 28 through 32. Jesus is speaking here to uh, some of these religious leaders. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So Jesus tells this parable and he's pointing it at the religious leaders he's talking to. And he says, there's two sons in this story. And the father asks both sons to go work in the vineyard. One says, I'm not going to do it. But then he rethinks it and says, you know what? I am going to do it. And then the other son says, absolutely. Yes, sir. I'm going to go work in the vineyard. But he never actually does it. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, you guys are the second son. You guys are the ones that say, absolutely. I love the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I want to do what the Lord tells me to do. And so you have this appearance of faith. You have this appearance of following God, but yet you don't really do it. Whereas there are other folks who are actually living this life where there is no pretense of religiosity, who at first when they hear this go, no, I don't want that. Right? But then they rethink it. And they go, you know what? I am going to go into the vineyard. My concern is that today's Christian culture has the potential to breed second sons in the same way that the religious culture of the first century had the potential to breed second sons who say, yes, I will work in my father's vineyard, but who never actually do it because it's too hard. So what is the actual cost of discipleship for us, right? If if it's not like being disowned by our family, What is the actual cost of discipleship for us? And I think there are a lot of answers to that question. But today I want to focus on one thing. One thing I think that we need to be focused on laying at the feet of Jesus together. And I think if we're going to be successful and healthy as a church community, this is something we have to lay at the feet of Jesus. And that is our preferences. We have to lay our preferences at his feet and say, Jesus, I am willing to sacrifice what I want for what you want. We idolize our preferences. In fact, I would say that we worship our preferences based on the amount of time and attention and energy and money and work that we put into satisfying our preferences and satisfying what we want. Our world preaches to us a gospel that says that what you want is the most important thing, that it is good to be selfish, that the primary thing that you should focus on is yourself and your family. And nowhere is this more obvious, to me at least, than in the local church. Our church culture, especially around here, gives us a world where you can literally shop around 
and try to tick off as many of your preferential boxes as possible. You can literally shop around and find the place that you like the best. Not the place where you think I can serve Jesus the best here. And not always the place where you think this is going to have the greatest spiritual value for me. But where you think this is going to meet my perceived needs. Which is often our focus. Not God, what do you want? But what do I want? And we are just now coming out of an era. This has happened in really the lifetime of our parents. Where church leaders were essentially taught that the most important thing that they could do was to cater to people's preferences. Just giving people the scriptures and giving people prayer and giving people like the sung like truth of the gospel, that's not enough anymore. Like if, if you don't want people to leave your church, you've got to start thinking about what they want, right? And, and so this became known as the church growth movement or the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, movement, like the, the idea that we're going to try to make this work for you and to give you exactly what you want, rather, unfortunately, rather than what you need the most. And, and I don't know if you think this, but often those are two different things. Like often what I need spiritually is not necessarily the thing that I'm longing for in my life. Or it's not often the thing that I think is going to fix whatever my issue is. The real stuff of Christian faith, guys, is the stuff that seems stereotypical often. Like reading the Bible is one of the real things. Like if you want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to read about who Jesus is or what Jesus did or what Jesus taught, then following him is going to be really challenging. Like, if I want to follow Jesus, if I say that, but I don't want to spend any time in prayer, like, I don't want to try to listen to what he's leading me to do, or I don't want to, like, bring my needs before him, or if I do, it's a last resort, or I've I've exhausted all other things. Like, if you don't want to do those things, then it's like the son that says, I want to work in the vineyard, but he never really does it, right? Does that make sense? Are you all following me? So almost every week, and and this has always been the case for as long as I've been in ministry, almost every week, I'll have a conversation with somebody who is either wanting to leave the church or somebody who's wanting to like join a new church or our church. And nine times out of 10, their reasons for doing so are primarily preferential. Like, I mean, just if we're being honest. They think going somewhere else is going to be easier for them in some way or going somewhere else is going to be more comfortable in some way. And, and this is especially pronounced, I think, for us when you have a church plan, when you are not an established church. And, and like we don't have a youth ministry. And I mean, this is our kids ministry, right? Like and, and th- we're meeting in a gym and it's it's hot and, and like it's not fancy like when you think, man, I've got to have all of these things in a church, and then you see this, you go, man, there are plenty of other places I can go and get more, right, for my time. Like, if I'm going to spend my time, then I need more out of it than this. So that isn't to say that there aren't reasons why a person should leave a church that are good reasons, but it's pretty rare that I talk to somebody who's leaving their church because the church isn't preaching the gospel or because the church has decided that Jesus is in fact not Lord 
or because there's just outright like heresy, just untruth that's being spread in the body. I, I certainly talk to people who are leaving a church because they feel like they've been wronged or they've been sinned against or because they have like unresolved conflict with another person. And, and while that's certainly difficult, I would throw out to you guys, that's kind of a part of it because we are all sinners, right? If you think that we're all gonna come together, people who all need a savior, people who all need Jesus, and that at some point, we're not going to in some way step on each other's toes, I just don't think that's realistic. Like that stuff is going to happen and we have to be prepared for it. Like we have to kind of like count the cost and recognize that when that happens, oh, I'm not blindsided by it. I'm not surprised by it. Why? Because we all mess up, right? We all say things we don't mean. We all do things that we don't want to do. Even right now, this sermon is making some of you think, man, we need to get out of here. I'm going to hold for the laughter there, that last line. So here's the thing. Being a part of the local church is not exactly what Jesus was talking about here in Luke 14. But listen, if we can't bear with each other, right, if we can't be made mildly uncomfortable or inconvenienced, or if we can't sacrifice our preferences for each other, then how are we going to follow Jesus? who calls us to pray that his will, not mine, not yours, would be done, and who promises who promises that difficulty and discomfort and trial will come from following him. The path of discipleship is the path of difficulty, discomfort, and trial. In, in many ways, this is the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say here. If you want Jesus, you have to take up your cross, meaning you have to pursue the death of you. And what is the cross? It is an implement of death. And by the way, this is before Jesus went to the cross, right? So, so we hear this and we go, oh yeah, Jesus is going to die on the cross. But these folks didn't know that. Right? So there's no connection. To them, this is what the Romans used to execute people. And Jesus says, you need to take it up and carry it and follow me if you want to come after me and be my disciple. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing for you to die so that Christ might live in you, then you cannot be my disciple. That Weston would die and Christ would live What Jesus makes clear in his teaching is that the way of the disciple, the way of Christ, will not seem like the right way. He says things like, it's a narrow gate. Um, It's a narrow path. Surely there are better gates to go through when you look at it. Like, it seems like surely there are better paths to walk down. And, And yet, this is the way. This is the truth. Surely there are paths that are more inclusive. Uh, certainly there are paths that require less of me, but Jesus says, no, if you want to come after me, you have to take up your cross. You have to count the cost. You have to renounce everything that you have. You have to be willing to love the things of this world less than you love me. Now, here's what I want to end with, and this is key for us. Us following Jesus perfectly, thankfully, is not the source of our salvation, right? Our salvation is not based on 
us perfectly taking up our cross and following him. Salvation is based totally on his death and resurrection. It is based solely on his grace and his mercy that he has extended to us. So in some ways, through his death and resurrection, it's almost as if he's saying, hey, I have created this beautiful thing for you. In fact, he does say this. He says things like, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And, and I've got a table for you to dine at with me. And, and, and I've got like a family that I'm inviting, that I'm adopting you into. And it's a family where you will be a beloved son or daughter of the king. And it's a family where you will also be like a priest, right? And it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done. But if that's true, and you say, I, I want that, right? I want to give my life to that. I want to follow that with everything that I have. Then Jesus says, you have to serve me because I'm the king who's bringing about this new kingdom. And what I demand of you is your allegiance. What I demand of you is your obedience. So you cannot serve God and money, for example, scripture says. Doesn't work. You can't serve two masters. You can only serve one master. And that is the tension that all of us live in. The question for us is, in counting the cost, is what is the master that you most likely want to serve other than Christ? What is the master that you most likely want to serve other than Christ? And how are you working with the Holy Spirit in your life to actually put that master in its proper place of submission to Christ? So that you might serve him as Lord of everything. So that you might give him your whole heart and your whole life. What are you willing to put to death? What sin are you willing to let go of? What fears are you willing to place in his hands, right? So that he might be the true Lord of everything for you. Guys, this is what we are called to pursue. This is what it means to mature in Christ, to grow up into him. That we are constantly engaged in this work of putting away the old man, as Paul says, and taking on the new man, right? And that requires effort and action and work on your part. It takes intentionality on your part. It takes you taking up your cross and going, I'm going to submit these things. I'm going to sacrifice these things, things that I like and love. But I love Jesus more, and he's worth more. Let's pray.